Hi everybody, you're listening to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. I'm your host, Charlie Hunt, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, uh, not one of my usual co-hosts, but a previous guest of the program who did such an awesome job. Uh, We wanted to bring her back again just to get some global perspective on some of the impacts of COVID-19. Dr. Nisha Bellinger, my colleague in the School of Public Service at Boise State, uh, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here, particularly because you know our listeners have probably been, like I have, reading a lot about the impact of the coronavirus in the U.S., the economic, the political impacts, the health impacts. And I was just wondering if you could paint us a picture a little bit, talking about how the experience that we've seen here in the U.S. might actually compare to some other countries, whether that's in terms of the economic, the health impacts, or maybe some of the political impacts, wherever you want to sort of take this. Well, we know what's happening in the U.S. Uh, Over 600,000 people have tested positive uh, for COVID-19. But let's put that in some context and compare what is happening in the U.S. to some of the countries in Europe, for instance. Um, So Italy was one of the first countries in Europe, saw a huge spike in the number of cases as well as in the number of deaths. Um, Spain um, as well. Uh, Germany is one of the countries where, uh, yes, they have a little over 130,000 cases, but what we see is that they are testing much more aggressively and at a much faster pace as compared to the US. So we see some difference in terms of how quickly some of the countries uh, have reacted to uh, the virus, uh, but especially when we compare what's happening in the US uh, and perhaps some of the countries in Western Europe to, let's say, Taiwan and South Korea, the difference is especially noteworthy. So Taiwan, uh, it's it has a population of about 23 million, uh, but only has about 400 cases of COVID. Uh, with under 10 uh, deaths so far. And it's very close to China. Same with South Korea has about 9,000 cases, so far more than Taiwan, uh, but about 200 deaths. And one of the things we see is that these two countries were also hit with the SARS virus in the early 2000s. And so they've just been a lot better prepared when it comes to acting quickly and knowing what to do Uh, right from the beginning. You know, one thing I think probably a lot of folks do know about the South Korea case is that they were doing really, really, I think, aggressive testing really early on in the process. Uh, Do you think that that kind of aggressive strategy uh, that come out of the political situation or the economic situation, or do you think that's to do a lot more with what you just said, this kind of preparation, because they had to deal with the SARS outbreak uh, a couple of decades ago? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we see Taiwan, South Korea, the US, they are all democracies, right? So so that is one similarity that they have. They're also relatively sort of high income countries. The big difference is in terms of the health infrastructure, uh, they're just a lot better prepared. So South Korea, for instance, they Uh, started uh, encouraging people to self-quarantine as early as January uh, with people who were coming back from China and and some of the other countries. But they also used credit cards surveillance to keep track 
of who were these people who came back and who have they been in contact with right from the beginning. And so this has really sort of slowed the spread of the virus uh, in uh, the two countries there. Okay, interesting. I mean, so we've so we've talked a lot about Europe and and obviously we know that Italy got a lot of early attention because of their pretty serious outbreak and and China will we'll talk about in a little bit and then in the next segment as kind of a special case. What I haven't read a lot about is how this has affected less developed nations, particularly nations in Africa and and the Middle East and you know maybe some some other areas of Central and East Asia. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what are some of the unique challenges that those kinds of nations face rather, you know, than these more developed countries like the US that may have sort of more advanced capabilities and resources. Uh, how does that sort of developing condition affect these countries' responses to this crisis? Um, yeah, and we'll see that countries that are not as wealthy as countries in Western Europe and the US, for instance, they face a unique set of challenges. So let me start with India. India uh, so far has about 10,000 cases. Uh, I am unsure as to how many people they have actually tested. But what the prime minister in India did is within hours of seeing a fir- the first few hundred cases, or uh, Prime Minister Modi imposed a national lockdown across the country within hours. The challenging aspect of that has been the large cities in India like Mumbai and Delhi, they have a lot of people from far away rural places who work in these large cities. So overnight, they lost their jobs and they spend all the money that they earn on a day-to-day basis to buy food. And so now they had to travel back to their hometowns. But then Modi, Prime Minister Modi, also suspended travel by railways, air travel. Cars can't go from one town to another. So buses can't go from one town to another. So a lot of these people are walking hundreds of kilometers to reach uh, their hometowns. And uh, we, are, we, we are talking about millions of people who work in these large cities. So that is sort of a unique uh, situation that we find in a country like India, which is extremely populated. And a lot of these people uh, work far away from their hometowns. So that's India. Pakistan, uh, which neighbors India, um, how have they responded to it? So again, the number of positive cases so far um, is in the few thousands. I'm not sure how many people they've, they have actually tested. A lot of people from countries in South Asia go and work in the UAE. Uh, So you have Pakistani nationals who are stuck in the UAE because Pakistan does not want to bring them back to the country because they are unsure if they are going to be infected. And if they are, how are they going to what are they going to do with uh, hundreds or perhaps thousands of people who will come back? Uh, How would they address sort of the health consequences of that? So we see these two Asian countries with their uh, with their. challenges that are they're facing that are sort of very different from what we see in Western Europe and the US. And so do you feel uh, in terms of sort of the the health impacts, uh, you know, those we've, you know, you've identified some interesting trends in terms of sort of the health impacts and testing and things like that. 
is it, it do you feel like in general kind of the the intense economic disparity that exists obviously we talk a lot about economic inequality in the in in the US that's a big debate in American politics but the sort of really intense sort of economic impacts and poverty maybe that's happening in some of these developing countries is making what would have been already a pretty bad situation even worse uh absolutely and so it really comes down to how are these countries addressing the concerns of those who are the least fortunate uh so even a country like india which is by no means a high income country is uh, rolling out a plan to make sure that people um especially the poorest segment of society they're they're given free food uh rural farmers they are getting a cash stipend now you know there's there will be a lag in terms of the government proposing a program and being able to actually deliver so a lot of the migrant population that is now going back to their rural hometowns they don't really know where to go to get food so that is something the government has to figure out but let's contrast that with what is happening in zimbabwe for instance zimbabwe fairly recently in 2017 went through a coup where the former vice president is now the president of the country uh he was backed by the military but zimbabwe has already has been an extreme economic uh, sort of grievance with high uh, unemployment high inflation food shortages so those problems are already there and now they see an outbreak as well so this is going to put a lot of strain on uh, countries that are already suffering in terms of having all these uh, economic grievances how are they going to address the pandemic some really really important points and and some sort of harrowing stories from abroad. Uh, we're going to take a short break here, and then we're going to come back on the Big Tent and talk a little bit uh, about China, you know, maybe whether it was sort of part of the origins of this crisis and maybe some of the political questions that the U.S. has been involved in in that area. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Big Tent here on Radio Boise. I'm your host, Charlie Hunt, uh, joined today by Dr. Nisha Bellinger, faculty in the School of Public Service, talking to us about some of the international uh, health, economic, political issues around the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Nisha, we were just talking about some of the, in particular, the economic uh, disparities in some sort of less developed nations or nations who face certain kinds of political upheaval. Uh, Iran was a nation that faced a pretty is continues to face but but faced a pretty early spike in covid cases um and they are also in kind of a a somewhat unique position of having a let's say interesting maybe oftentimes contentious relationship with the US um can you talk a little bit about what's been going on in in Iran, the kinds of challenges uh, they've been facing as, you know, one of maybe kind of the the regional kind of epicenter of the the crisis in the Middle East? Yeah, absolutely. Iran and the U.S. have not been on good terms for a while. There are economic uh, sanctions that have been imposed by the U.S. on Iran. And now Iran also happens to be a top 10 country with the no uh, with the most number of positive covid cases and so th- that puts additional strain on the economy of a country that is that has already been strained so any potential funding that is taken away from organizations 
like the World Health Organization will make it that much harder for it to help people in countries that may not have the resources. That's really interesting. And, and you mentioned the World Health Organization and you know, it's maybe an organization that at least most Americans probably weren't super aware of until recently, um, but they've kind of been in the news even more recently thanks to uh, this this new kind of uh, strategy, it appears, of, of President Trump's to sort of place some of the blame here on the WHO uh, and actually has, has sort of advised that he's going to cut the, you know, a lot of the U.S. funding to the WHO. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what their uh, what their role normally would be in in sort of a period like this? What they're generally kind of supposed to be doing, and and whether you have any sense of if they did fall down on the job here, is this is this kind of their failure, or is it something that was maybe not super preventable? Right. So the World Health Organization is an international organization, and as the title suggests, they sort of address you know, they oversee uh, global health patterns. And especially when it comes to things like a pandemic, they try to uh, alert the countries around the world and think about ways to address such a crisis, try and uh, promptly put an end to it. And so the World Health Organization is, is essentially funded by countries around the world. So China is a big funder, so is the United States. One of the, uh, the issues with the virus is that not many countries uh, or not many scientists, we are learning about it as we go, right? So initially, uh, some of the suggestions that came from the World Health Organization, so they didn't necessarily come out and say, call for a travel ban for all countries and so on, because people are still sort of learning about it, right? And so they have come under some criticism that they didn't alert the countries around the world as to how serious things might get over time. Uh, but then they were also receiving information from China, which is where the virus emerged for the first time. Uh, so their information as is as good as the information that was shared with them by China. Sure. And so uh, this kind of brings me to my next point here, which has to do with China. So another target of the president's in the last couple of weeks has sort of transitioned to to China. And, and you know, we, we all know at this point that China had seen this initial spike in cases, particularly in the Wuhan region, but then has subsequently, you know, really significantly, we all know now, kind of flattened that curve and with some extreme measures uh, gotten past a, a big portion of this crisis. And you mentioned earlier some of the questions around sort of information sharing and acting soon and acting quickly, all sort of being key to the countries that have been able to respond in a positive way to this crisis. What role do you do you see China playing here since they were kind of so early in the process? And, and how do the actions that their government took sort of stack up with some of the other countries we've been talking about? So when it comes to China, so at a much more macro level, we know most of the scholarly research when it comes to sort of global health dynamics between democracies and non-democracies, what we see is that democracies have an advantage in the sense that there is free flow of information from the government to the citizens, primarily because you have a free press, free media. And so if there is a disaster in one part of the country, people will know in other parts of the country as well. 
Um, with China, you don't have that free flow of information. So yes, they have the capacity to address a crisis when the crisis arises, which they have done. Uh, if we are to believe the numbers that are coming out from there, the number is around 80,000 positive cases, and they're sort of increasing at a very, very slow pace. But the crisis uh, sort of first came on the radar of a scientist uh, who was then sort of uh, repressed in the sense that he wasn't allowed allowed to share that information with the media, with the government officials as freely as perhaps he should have been to alert the people around the country in, in, in the region to begin with, but also sort of globally speaking that, okay, this is something that might become much more of a problem. And, the, and that is just one of the attributes of a non-democracy, that the government may not have reacted as promptly as perhaps as it should have, uh, because it didn't want to have the people, you know, sort of get too worried or the potential fallback of that, right? So what may happen if the government doesn't do too much about it? That's a really fascinating point, particularly since, you know, thinking about somewhere like the US where, you know, the federal government in particular has come under a lot of criticism for not acting more quickly and not doing more testing earlier on in the process. The the US as a whole still has not instituted a, a nationwide lockdown and a number of states are holding out. It feels like the fact that, you know, the US is a country with a, certainly relative to other nations, a very free press. Information was getting out there really quickly. And so you could have even if the federal government wasn't acting as quickly as scientists might have wanted to, you had states like California and Washington and some, some of these other states acting really early or even cities and localities acting really early. You know, right here in Boise, we had we were, you know, the, the city of Boise instituted essentially a stay home order a couple weeks before the state of Idaho. Do you think that sort of federalism kind of role that the U.S. has can kind of show how this free flow of information can help, you know, even local areas react in certain ways? Uh, yeah, and that's a great point, because if we think about it, like China has a federal structure. It's a non-democracy, but it has a federal structure. U.S. is a democracy with a federal structure. And so is India, a democracy with a federal structure. And if we look at the U.S. and India, two democracies with a federal structure, in the U.S., the federal government, the central government hesitated to impose sort of a national lockdown or a national shelter in place. In India, the prime minister within hours imposed a national shelter in place so much so that you can't even drive from one city to another. So you wouldn't be able to drive from Boise to, let's say, Portland, for instance. And so what Prime Minister Modi did is actually very similar to what the president in China did, where Wuhan was under lockdown. You couldn't go in, you couldn't go out, people couldn't even leave their houses. That is essentially what is happening in India right now. You can't leave your house to take a walk, something that we are still able to do in the US, even in states and cities where you have a shelter in place order. And so interestingly, we see some similarities and differences as well among these three countries where China is a non-democracy and then you have two democracies. But the federal state dynamic is similar as well as different. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating and can show us, you know, maybe why some of these differences exist between these different countries. All right, we're going to take uh, one more short break and then we're going to come back and talk, of course, more COVID-19. We'll be right back. Back to the Big Tent here on Radio Boise. Back here with Dr. Nisha Bellinger from the School of Public Service at Boise State. We're talking about all things COVID in the international context. Uh, we've talked a lot, uh, Nisha, about some of the differing health impacts and how economic inequality can drive those impacts. 
But what we've also been reading a lot about in the U.S. is particularly, you know, lately Congress passed a really sweeping couple trillion dollar economic stimulus package. They're currently sort of haggling over what they want to be in this next phase. And there's this understanding that there will be this continual kind of economic impact that governments will have to deal with. Based on sort of your reading of the the international scene, how does this response that the U.S. has had, the, the kind of economic strategy that the government has had to deal with the fallout of this crisis economically, how does that sort of compare to what other countries have done? Have there been some different strategies? Have they basically followed the same playbook? Uh, what do you see playing out there? Um, yeah, another really good question. Um, so if we go back to over a month ago, the chief economist at the IMF, so they came out uh, with this blog post talking about, well, what are the strategies that different countries should keep in mind in terms of, of the economic impacts of uh, the COVID crisis? And they suggested a range of uh, steps that countries should consider, including uh, just sending out cash to families, uh, doing something for smaller businesses, making it easier for people to take out loans. And so broadly speaking, we see a lot of countries around the world adopt some variation of these steps. So we see in the US uh, that if you fall under a certain income bracket, you get so much money. Uh, but then the government is also doing uh, something for smaller businesses, as well as uh, expanding the un uh, unemployment insurance benefits. So we see that in other countries. I'd say the big differences between the US and some of the countries in Western Europe in terms of the magnitude. So some countries are sort of more generous when it comes to addressing the economic fallout as compared to others. And then when we compare uh, countries uh, in the US and Western Europe to countries in India, obviously with over a billion people, you can't give out checks or cash to everyone. So they are sort of using some combination of, yes, making it easier for banks to give out loans, but also giving cash to sort of the poorest farmers who are producing crops, but they are unable to sell all of them because they can't sell them uh, for so many hours in a day. And, and so they may have to just throw out a lot of their produce, which my understanding is that's happening in the U.S., well, and, and I, I think that brings up a really interesting point, which is, you know, I'm not an economist, but some of the traditional ways in which we've seen economic stimulus happen in the past, I mean, the in the US following the financial crisis in 2008, the economic stimulus package that the Obama administration put through in early 2009 was really, really heavily focused on things like infrastructure. But there's only so many infrastructure projects you can do, if any, if people aren't allowed to gather in public, if you can't send big construction crews could to, to go do these jobs. And so a lot of this traditional kind of economic stimulus that just isn't available. And so maybe you have more countries turning to these simple kind of cash payments just to sort of help families keep food on the table, right? Um, but since we're talking about an economic stimulus, I think something to consider also, if you're giving a paycheck that barely covers rent and food, then that's not much of a stimulus. It's more like a survival <laughs> package. And so stimulus should exactly. be something more than what families need. So then they have extra money to go and spend it in the economy. That's a really, that's a really great point. And so, you know, one other economic impact, global economic impact that I'm really interested in, particularly because I know almost nothing about it and yet 
have seen sort of continual headlines about it is sort of the oil market. You know, you had a couple of weeks ago, you had President Trump talking about, you know, potentially having some kind of negotiations with nations like Saudi Arabia over the oil markets and adjusting and sort of trying to control the, the price of oil in these OPEC countries. Can you help explain to me as as someone who knows almost nothing about this sort of why the oil market in particular is is a really important piece here and and what in particular about it is being kind of tweaked by this this crisis yeah absolutely you know the crisis sort of we saw signs of it going back to january oil producing countries saudi arabia is what is one big country but also russia so um they uh, sort of going back to february early march talked about potentially increasing oil production in order to get a larger share of the market because other oil producing countries uh the the countries in the opec group wanted to uh scale back production because people were not traveling as much right now if they if russia and saudi arabia increase their production then oil prices would fall even further but then they came around to the idea well that that may not help because already prices are falling and if you have more supply then there is demand for they'd fall even more. Uh, about 10 days ago or so, uh, they finally agreed to also fall in line with the other OPEC countries and agree to scale back production uh, by, I think, almost 10%. And that would make it so that, yes, prices are falling because people are not traveling as much, but hopefully that they wouldn't fall uh, even further. So, so, that, in, that, so, so in this, this way, way it's, it's, it's one, one kind, kind of international industry or, or economic factor that at, at least the, 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 it's, it's so centralized, centralized in certain countries, countries that we have some way of kind of exercising a little control over it and, and, and making sure, sure the impact doesn't fall out of control like, like in some other industries. industries. Um, absolutely. And but beyond that, I think for Russia and Saudi Arabia, they rely on their on their right. oil wealth a lot. And so for those countries, especially if that is the primary source of income, uh, you can see perhaps why they may have decided to initially increased production to capture the market share and then came around to the idea that this you know prices may keep falling because things quickly got out of control almost uh, and so now they're deciding to sort of scale back really interesting point we're running out of time here nisha but i wanted to ask you one more question which is covid19 has dominated the headlines across the world for the better part of a couple months now it doesn't seem unlikely to go away at the top of the headlines anytime soon what's an impact that you've noticed here that you think maybe we haven't been paying enough attention to is are is are there any kinds of you know more maybe vulnerable people or groups out there that haven't necessarily gotten a ton of attention in the headlines but that we should maybe be keeping an eye out for for maybe some more dire situations playing out Yes. Um, and so the one group that comes to mind is uh, is the refugee population. And partic- in particular, I'd like to speak briefly about the Rohingya refugees who uh, are originally from Myanmar. Uh, but the military has sort of cracked down on the Rohingya population. As a result, millions of them fled from Myanmar in South Asia to Bangladesh, the closest country there. Now, Bangladesh also has the highest 
highest population density in the world and add to that that they have to now accommodate a growing group of people from a neighboring country and bangladesh by no means is a rich country it it is already strained in terms of resources uh, the refugee camps you you can't practice social distancing there they are extremely cramped there is need for essential resources like food clean water um and so far the last time i checked there was one positive case of covid in the rohingya camp about a week ago but if that turns into a community outbreak then things will slowly get out of control in the camp but also in uh, the country bangladesh that's that's really uh fascinating and unfortunate to hear we hope groups in those regions find some some ways to try and and mitigate that nisha bellinger thank you so much for coming on the the program and sharing some of your knowledge about the international context uh, jackie luke jen and i uh, really appreciate it because we are not quite so knowledgeable in those areas so thanks for bringing your expertise to the show Thank you for having me. All right. We're going to leave it there for today, uh, but we will be back next week for another episode of The Big Tent. Thanks for listening.